And so we are on our third and final week of our series called Hashtag Staying. So won't you turn with me? If you've been with us, you know where you're going. Jeremiah chapter 29, if you're here for the first time, just over halfway in your Bibles. Otherwise, click there on your tablets or your smartphones. And despite the implications of the title of the series, the series is not a sermon series on emigration. It's not a series on whether you should stay or whether you should go, but it is a series on how we as Christians are to relate to planet Earth. By that, I don't mean the environment. I mean the communities, the neighborhoods, the cities that we find ourselves in. And whether we find ourselves located by God in Johannesburg, in Cape Town, in the middle of the Karoo, in North or South America, Australia, Europe, wherever we are hashtag staying, wherever the Lord guides us, we are to live in such a way that we make a difference to the world around us. And Jeremiah 29 has been speaking to us about this. Two weeks ago in the first week, we learned that we as Christians are to think of ourselves as exiles, that we have been displaced from our true capital H home. And while we may call many other places small H home, God initially placed us as human beings in a, in a place called Eden, and God is going to redeem that and bring us back to a place where He redeems history. He purges this creation, and He judges this creation, purges it of all evil and all pain and all death. And at that stage, we will be able to experience in creation this capital H home. But in the meantime, we get to taste that in Jesus. As He said, He is the way the truth and the life. And so wherever we're staying, we cannot look to Joburg or Cape Town or, or Europe or wherever else to be our capital H home because it will disappoint and there's brokenness there. But we can look to our perfect Father and the presence of Jesus amongst us to start allowing us to feel what home is like. And then last week, Craig spoke to us about how we are as exiles to bless our city. And if you missed the sermon, I highly recommend you go online and Craig unpacks the acronym B-L-E-S-S. And I'm not going to do that this morning, but just how can we as exiles be a blessing to the city around us? If you weren't here last week, you might go, but, but Stephen, this is Joburg. I mean, Joburg is hectic. Joburg is rough. Some of you have experienced crime and even violence crime. And you're saying, how can I be a blessing to this kind of a place? And just a reminder that when Jeremiah is writing in this chapter, he is writing to exiles who were displaced violently from their land, from their city, from their temple. They were taken into a foreign culture. They were surrounded by people who basically, in inverted commas, were the enemy. People with strange morality, strange food, strange clothing, strange sexual practices. And Jeremiah writes them saying, God has brought you here to be a blessing to these people. And that's what last week was about. So what are we going to talk about this week? And this week we're going to talk about how we, through the lens of being an exile, how we engage the culture around us. Now, Stephen, what do you mean by that? Well, most of us as Christians spend relatively little amounts of time doing, in inverted commas, Christian stuff. 
I mean, I, I really believe everything that we do as believers should be uh, sanctified. Everything that we're doing is somehow connected to God and His kingdom. But that's why I say in inverted commas, because if you add up kind of singing and praying and reading the Bible and going to church and being part of a life group and just put that into a pie chart with regards to everything else you do, work and sleep and play and being with your family, the so-called Christian stuff occupies a very small part of your life. And so the question is, how does that little slice of the pie influence everything else? Because everything else, you're engaging with society. You're engaging with the culture around you. You cannot avoid it even if you try. And so as Christians, I mean, how do we think about these things? For example, as Christians, as exiles, what movies are we allowed to watch? Are we only allowed to watch movies that Kirk Cameron acts in? And if you don't know who Kirk Cameron is, he's basically the guy who legitimizes Christian movies, all right? Um, so are we only allowed to watch Christian movies or animations? Or, you know, when does it become inappropriate for us? Or what about music? Are we only allowed to listen to worship music? Or what about Christian non-worship music? Or what about hard rock Christian non-worship music? Or what about rock and roll? Or what about rap? And, and where does that become inappropriate for us? All right, and as we think about these things, um, how do I relate to people who live different lifestyles to me? And I'm referring to people in your families, people in your neighborhoods, people in your workplace, people who have made different life decisions, and sometimes that even oppose directly what you believe. How do you relate to them? Or how do you relate to people who believe different things to you? And finally, how do we relate to certain trends in our culture that seem to rub up against Christianity, if not become flat out hostile towards the things of Christianity? And those are the kinds of questions we as Christians need to be thinking about. These are the kinds of questions we as Christians are faced with, and we can either engage with it courageously or stick our head in the sand. And obviously, my encouragement is to engage courageously and thoughtfully and prayerfully. And I'm praying that Jeremiah 29 and the whole of the series provides us with a bit of a framework for how to do this. And while you're not going to walk away with a clear answer as to which movies you can and cannot watch, hopefully you're going to walk away with a framework and a better idea of how to think about all of our engagements with culture. So let's read the same verses that Craig read last week, Jeremiah 29 verses 4 to 7. And this is Jeremiah writing to these exiles in Babylon. And this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what he says. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters and find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, if one had to imagine what a Christian writing to a bunch of people in a foreign land with strange food and strange morality and strange sexual practices and strange idolatrous practices, what would the average Christian content be? To be, watch out for this and, and, and watch out for that and, and just make sure you don't do this and don't make sure you destroy your witness by doing this and this and this. 
But what's going on here? As Craig pointed out last week, there's a whole lot of do's. And as we think about our engagements with culture, we as Christians can become obsessed with the don'ts. And sometimes we become so obsessed with the don'ts and we're trying to live out as hard as possible the don'ts, but we fail to live out the do's. We fail to live out what comes out so strongly through this passage and Jesus' teachings that are connected to this. And so as a bit of a thought exercise, I thought to myself, I wonder what the anti-Jeremiah 29 verses 5 to 7 looks like. In other words, if I took those very same verses and just flipped them on their head, what would you get? So here's my shot at uh, doing this. Live mobile lives. Never settle down long enough to make a difference. Do the same with marriage. Don't let marriage restrict your life and don't get shackled by one person for the rest of your life. Isolate yourselves and have small families. Don't set up a legacy for future generations to thrive and flourish. Be skeptical and fearful of the city and culture around you. And never pray for your city. Just live for yourself. And that's scary, right? When we look at those words on the screen and as far as is possible, I try to objectively simply flip around the tone of these verses. And isn't that what we see on the screen largely how Christians on average engage the world? Now, this is not a comment. This is not about getting into the details. Should you, shouldn't you have two or three or five kids or whatever? I know for some people it's a struggle here or, or should you move? This is a picture of how we should be engaging the city around us and engaging our culture. And why is it that so often we reflect this rather than what is actually written down in our Bible? So how do we get beyond this? I was listening to a pastor preach on this and he said, you know what, living as a Christian in our culture is kind of like trying to cross a large river to the other side. Now, I know in South Africa, we don't really have really large rivers, but just imagine a day out at the Vol, okay, and and you standing on one side, you want to get to the other side and you see a bush or a tree or a rock and that becomes your beeline. And so you jump in, stick your head down and just start swimming you know exactly what's going to happen, whether that uh, river is flowing strongly or even weakly. By the time you get to the other side, you're going to be hundreds of meters, if not more, downstream. And in the same way, if you and I as Christians engage culture, we kind of listen to a sermon, read a book, read the Word, get a bit of an idea of this is where we need to be going, and then just put your head down and go in an unthoughtful manner, what's going to happen is you're going to land up hundreds of meters downstream of what you were aiming for. The alternative in the river is to try and fight the river, try and fight the current, try and swim upstream. And what is going to happen to you? The older I get, the shorter the time is where I would start drowning. All right, and the same is true with our culture. We can recognize, oh, wow, there is a current. There is a tide taking me in the wrong direction. So I'm going to fight it. I'm going to swim upstream. And if that is your approach to culture, you will sink. And you will lose faith at some point. The other alternative on the river, and I still remember in matric for our kind of end of year prefix camp, this is what we did. You can just go with the flow. In our particular case, we got a bit of a rubber tube, hopped on there and went downstream with the flow. Not only is it the easiest solution, it is the funnest solution. 
And the same is true with culture. We can just say, no, no, this is just too hard. I've tried getting to the other side. I've tried fighting culture. I'm just gonna give up and go downstream. It's the easiest thing to do. And if we're honest, sometimes it's the funnest thing to do, right? Which is where it's appeal lies. And so the challenge for us as Christians and as exiles, how do we live in this culture? How do we engage the current and the tide of this culture while still remaining faithful to our God? There's a great example for us amongst these people that Jeremiah was writing to. If you read verse one and two of this passage in Jeremiah 29, you'll see that the first group of people brought from Jerusalem into Babylon were kind of the cultural elites, the artisans and the people with skills and the people, the kind of nobility. And amongst those people was a guy called Daniel. And if you go and read the book of Daniel from chapter one, you see that Daniel was described as a, a good-looking guy, an intelligent guy, just very quick to be able to learn things. He was equipped, he was prepared, he had a noble birth. And for that reason, him and similar type people were taken into the palace of this foreign king, the king responsible for the deaths of his people. And these kind of elite nobles, these Jewish nobles, went through a three-year reprogramming exercise where Babylon wanted to make use of their minds and their strengths. But it took three years to re-educate them and educate them in the patterns and the lives and the thoughts and the literature and the philosophy of Babylon. And they dressed like Babylonians. In fact, Daniel even took on a Babylonian name. And for some of you, they might strike you. Isn't that a bit compromising? Now, Daniel naturally would have faced a couple of options as he's in this new culture, very forcefully being kind of bottle-fed this new way of thinking. His one would have been to resist, to try and fight the stream. And we all know that would have lasted about five seconds and kind of off with his head. Maybe he could have kind of resisted covertly and kind of you know, got close to the king and tried to assassinate him. Maybe that's one way he could have resisted. The other way would have been the one to go downstream and just to recognize, wow, I mean, yeah, sure, some of my countrymen were killed, but I'm sitting with my behind in the butter and man, I've got money, I've got power, I've got wealth, I've got influence, I've got women, I'm just gonna go with this. He could have done that. But Daniel knew there was a third way and while superficially it looks like he was acclimatizing himself to Babylonian culture, dressing like a Babylonian, speaking and maybe even thinking like a Babylonian, even calling himself by his Babylonian name. There were many times in his life and the lives of his friends where they had to draw a line in the sand. One of those moments was when the king demanded that no one pray to their gods other than to the king himself. And Daniel said, that I cannot do. And I'm willing to be thrown into a lion's den, quite literally, to lose my life for my convictions. And so when you and I are in, inverted commas, Babylon, if we're in Johannesburg, if we're in South Africa, if we're in Europe, how we are faced with the exact same options before us. Great book called Messy Grace by a guy called Caleb Kaltenbach. And he outlined kind of three approaches Christians tend to take when it comes to engaging culture. And the first one is this. He says, we as Christians can aggressively fight with a broken society. This is the swimming upstream. 
This is when our responses are always with anger and with judgment and we're hot faced about everything and we're finger pointing and we're showing how everybody else is wrong and we're always right and then we're always surprised why no one out there wants to come and party with us in here. Right? The, the second approach is to surrender and compromise and just fully hop on board with society. This is the way of compromise. This is the easy way. This is maybe even the funnest way. This is maybe a response to, I don't want to be like those judgmental Christians, so I'm going to just do whatever I want. Sometimes it's actually just, if we're honest, just giving ourselves permission to do what we want to do. But before I get into the third approach, I just want to look at these first two approaches, the approach of fighting aggressively with society or the approach of getting on board and surrendering. I mean, when last, when last did anyone here in this room win someone to the beauty of Christ by fighting with them? When last did you judge somebody and they go, oh, I love Jesus, right? It didn't happen ever. Or on the other hand, if we go to the second approach, Yes, maybe people have looked at your compromised life and have gone, yeah, you know what? I always thought Christians were judgmental and you're not like one of those Christians. And you're like, yes. But then when did your compromised life actually show someone else the beauty of Christ in your life? And when did that actually win someone over? And I think you know the answer to those questions. And so maybe aggressively fighting culture and surrendering and getting on board with culture is not the best way to go. So which is the best way to go? And, and this is the approach that he suggests we need to take. A way that is truthful and gracious and not angry and self-righteous. He says, why don't we do it this way? Why don't we invest in society with empathy and conviction? I mean, haven't we seen that in Jeremiah 29? We invest ourselves, we pour ourselves out into the culture around us with empathy, meaning, man, we're going to take healing to where it hurts and we're going to engage broken people with, with the love and the truth of God and we're not going to sacrifice our conviction along the way. So how do we do that? I love just the explanatory power of this quote by Madeleine Lengel. She's a novelist, she's a poet, and this is what she wrote. She said, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, and by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. I mean, isn't that what Jeremiah 29 is about? In fact, isn't that what Jesus taught? When Jesus said of us, his people, he said, you're light of the world. You're salt of the earth. You're a city on the hill that shouldn't be hidden. You should live good deeds amongst the pagans, is what Jesus said. Isn't this what Jesus meant when he says, listen, we need to love God and love our neighbor. Oh, but Jesus, who's my neighbor? My buddy at church? No, no, no. The guy who comes from a different culture and believes different things to you, those Samaritans. And you need to love and serve them. Isn't it what Jesus meant when he said, love your enemy, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who uh, uh, um, persecute you. And not only is this what Jesus taught, isn't this what Jesus lived? 
I mean, if we think about the, the paradox of Jesus, who on one hand showed incredible empathy and incredible conviction. And he never sacrificed one for the other. Time and time again, we see Jesus was moved not by judgments, he was moved by compassion. Compassion and conviction. And so on one hand, Jesus raises the standards of the law. He says, listen guys, not only is it not okay to be involved in an adulterous relationship, but even if you think about it, you're guilty of adultery. And yet that same Jesus poured out grace on those who failed those standards. And we've got a Jesus who found his identity not in, his, in the world around him or the culture around him. He found his identity in his father. And yet he was able to show empathy to his enemies. And we've got a Jesus who lived a perfect life in thought and in deed. He never sinned at all. He sought to obey his father in everything. And yet... Those who are nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. Empathy and conviction. So Jesus taught us how he lived. And in fact, don't we see that on the cross itself? Where the very judgment that was due every evil deed and every evil person, Jesus took upon himself. And he could pray about his enemies, the very people crucifying, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. And guys, this is one of the things that when Bianca and I started Riverside nine and a bit years ago, this is one of the closed-handed values that we have wanted to embody as a church from day one. We've spoken about being a church full of grace and truth. Not 50, 50, 80, 20, 20, 80, but 100, 100. One of the ways that we as leaders were trying to get our heads around this, we eventually came up with these words and it is words that we see every single Sunday on this banner on my right are the words, for the world, for the king. Now, what does that mean? Well, you maybe heard the saying, well, the church, we, we need to be in the world, but not of the world. And I'd say, high five, we're halfway there. I believe we need to be in the world, not of the world. We need to be for the world. Because that's how the king lived. And we are for the world because the king is for the world. And we are for the world because the king demonstrated his love for the world by dying for enemies. And we need to be for the world because we're for the king. And so we are going to be unashamedly for Jesus. We're going to proclaim his name loudly. We're going to preach his word boldly. We're going to sing with incredible passion. And we're going to live out lives of conviction for the king. And we're going to demonstrate the heart of God to a broken world. And we're going to live lives of conviction and compassion. Lives of conviction and empathy and in that way embody Jesus in this world and that's what the church is right the body of Christ in this world that is who we are Riverside the core value of who we are and so how do we do this practically now Craig gave us that acronym B-L-E-S-S last week and I just want to add on to that just three practical words that can help us engage culture as exiles 
And it is these three words, just easy to write down, easy to remember, and easy to apply as filters in our lives. And it is these words, receive, reject, redeem. Receive, reject, redeem. Say it with me. Receive, reject, redeem. One more time. Receive, reject, redeem. So what does that mean? When we step out of this place and we go to Mall of the South, we get onto the golf course, we go to our social places, we get onto social media, we go to our families, we go to our workplaces tomorrow. We're gonna be faced with decisions that we as cultures are gonna be able to apply these three words to. And the first one is that there are things that we can receive in culture. James 1 verse 17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. This means that we can receive good things in this world and not just because we're Christians. Man, this rain is falling on the whole of our city. And it doesn't matter what you believe in, we can receive that rain. This morning I was in the worship team, I happened to be playing, and I really don't wanna be boasting with this, but I happened to be playing the guitar of my dreams. When I was a child growing up and a teenager, I could only ever afford knockoffs and cheap, cheap versions of the guitar I'm playing. But at some point in my mid-30s, around a birthday and some money we managed to find, I was able to buy myself an American Fender Stratocaster. And I can tell you, I love that guitar. I love that guitar. And I can say that guilt-free. Right, because it is a gift from my Father in heaven, because all good things come from my Father in heaven. I can receive that. And so when it comes to culture around us, uh, just a few months ago, we preached the book of Colossians. Do you remember Colossians chapter two? Spoke about the ability for us to receive the good things of food and drink that God gives us. And so we can receive those, we can enjoy those, and we can be thankful to God for those, provided we don't start making God things out of them and looking to them for our identity, meaning, and we go into excess. And Colossians 2 also just spoke about how the fact that maybe one of you might make a certain decision about these things and someone else might make another decision and how we're not to judge one another of these things. But there are things in culture that are good gifts from God that we can receive. Music, clothes, we can receive these things. But then there are certain things that we must reject. Ephesians 5 verses 8 says, For you were once darkness. That's how you used to live. But now you are light in the Lord. So now live as children in the light. In other words, there are certain cultural things that you are going to reject in the name of living in the light. And so we might be able to receive food and drink, but we will reject gluttony and drunkenness. We can receive sexual pleasure in marriage, but we reject pornography and sexual fulfillment outside of marriage. We can receive art and beauty and music and movies, but we reject violence, addiction, and sexual exposure. And just by the way, when we make these decisions, which are not always easy, Think about Daniel. Daniel was willing to die for his conviction. But he was not trying to enforce his conviction on anybody else. And for him, he says, this is what I cannot do. I cannot bow and worship this king. And I'm gonna continue praying courageously to my God. And he made this decision for himself and lived it out with courage. 
So there are things in this culture around us that we can receive, give thanks to God for. There are things we must reject. And finally, there are things we can redeem. 1 Corinthians 3 verses 21b, the second half of verse 21 to 22 says this. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, these are just various church leaders who had different strengths, different abilities. So whether these church leaders or, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. The book of Colossians and in fact the rest of the Bible, I'm just going to Colossians because we just walked slowly and deliberately through it, teaches us that we don't land up being these people who floats around heaven for the rest of our lives. But through Christ, God is redeeming the whole world to himself. And so that is why Paul can write to the Corinthian church. But all these things are yours. So how do we take these things that are ours and redeem them for the sake of the kingdom in the name of Jesus? And these are maybe things that are neutral, that in and of themselves are not good or evil. But things that can be used to receive or things that can be used and, and we need to reject them or th ways that we can redeem them. For example, the, most, the biggest one that comes to my mind is the internet. Now, the internet is not inherently evil. And there are things on the internet that we can gladly receive and enjoy. All right, I happen to watch a bunch of cooking shows, how to cook the perfect steak on YouTube. And I receive that in Jesus' name. But then there are things we need to reject. But then how do we engage the platform of the internet to redeem the internet for God's glory? How do we engage in winsome, empathetic ways with conviction that are gonna be helpful to help people see who Jesus is? And so we can talk about podcasts and we can talk about YouTube videos and we can, talk, uh, this morning we as a worship team listened to this video that Brandon played for us and just a, a way, a video that is made with incredible music just to bring forth a message. How when we get onto our social media platforms, how do we engage redemptively and not just to consume? How do we not just do the things we don't we shouldn't do, how do we do the things we should do in a place like the internet? And we can think about redeeming time. And we can think about just redeeming relationships. Another way to engage redemptively in this world with conviction and empathy is where our conviction leads us not to try and swim upstream and angrily fight with society, but where our conviction leads us to engage redemptively. I'm gonna give you an example. Maybe you're reading the scriptures and you, you rightly see the value that God places on life. And for that reason, you conclude rightly that it is not God's desire that any life is taken, even a life that is in the womb. And now you've got an option. Your three options are still there. The one option is to get online and fight with everybody who disagrees with you. Or, or, you can learn how to counsel those who have been through this. You can volunteer in a pregnancy crisis center. You can mobilize your resources to supply the needs of places that are engaging with people who are walking around with the guilt. Or learn how to counsel people who are still making these decisions. 
and you actually bring the gospel to bear in a very broken place without judgment, but with compassion and empathy and conviction. But you're applying the truth where it's needed. Does that make sense? Imagine we did that. Imagine we spent our time doing that, investing our lives into others with empathy and conviction. And guys, it's not always easy to do this, so we need to do this with lots of prayer. Imagine, I mean, this may sound silly, but imagine you prayed, Jesus, should I watch this TV series? Okay, no writing on the walls, Start watching it. Spirit deposits something in my heart. Okay, Jesus, the answer is no. Jesus, just what's appropriate? How, How much time should we be spending as a family watching TV or investing in other things in our lives? Let him lead you. Let him speak to you. Imagine you saw something on social media that upsets you and you actually said, Lord, what do you think I should say to this? What is the most redemptive thing that I could contribute to this conversation, if anything at all? So we need to pray about these things. We also need to apply discernment. We grow in discernment by understanding God's word and God's heart. And as we grow in God's word and as we grow in God's heart, we are gonna be better equipped for making these decisions. And we also need to apply humility. On one hand, so we don't judge those who make maybe slightly different decisions to us. But on the other hand, that our posture of engagement with the broken world is not self-righteous, but rather I'm here to serve. Because that is the heart of Jesus. I heard someone writing on this a couple of years ago and he said, our posture is to allow God to judge, but in the meantime, what we do is we wage war with kindness. That is how we as exiles are to live. This is how we are to be for the world and for the king. And I believe that the best citizens of heaven should be the best citizens of earth. And I believe God wants us to live out our faith with conviction, but applying the conviction of the gospel with empathy and compassion in our families, in our social environments, on social media, now engagements with politics and economics and as bosses and employees with our friendship circles. And I believe this is one of the best ways that we can be light to the world and salt of the earth. And so this starts off, and I'm wrapping up, I promise, this starts off with us just recognizing our individual tendencies when it comes to the three postures of engaging the culture around us. And so I want you to take an honest audit of yourself here. Is your tendency to aggressively fight with everything that comes against what you believe in? Is your tendency to immediately get angry? Is your tendency to immediately put out something on social media? Is your tendency immediately to put others down and just to move into a judgmental, self-righteous space? And it's okay if if it is, Just, just be honest with yourself. Maybe your tendency is keep your convictions to yourself. Not in the name of wisdom, but in the name of fear. 
Go along with society. Go along with culture. Hope that nothing you do or say makes you stand out for Jesus. And maybe that's your tendency. And again, that's not a condemning thought. Just, just be honest with yourself. If I'm honest with you, I have both tendencies in my heart. I was just speaking to Bianca the other day about something that regularly comes up on social media that grinds me. And up to this point in time, I've yet to say anything about it because I know it would not be wise. And once we've acknowledged those tendencies and recognized how maybe they're not the best fit for the gospel, then we start making informed, spiritually intelligent decisions that better represents the nature and the heart of the gospel to a broken world. We become thoughtful, prayerful, humble, discerning, and ultimately engaging so that we're not defined by our don'ts but by our do's. And so we're gonna end off with a quote and I'm gonna ask Sam if you want to join me up on the stage here. I'm gonna end off with a quote that I think summarizes this so well. Could not say it better myself. And then we're gonna pray. And Scott Sauls, he wrote a book about irresistible faith, asking the question, why is our faith so often resistible? This is what he says. Having been made new in Christ, we have also become ambassadors in the world, sent out to be contagious contributors, not contemptible contrarians to the world around us. We are meant to be neither holier than thou enemies of the culture on the one hand, nor lawless and avaricious products of the culture on the other. Instead, this is the third way, we are to become culture shapers for the good and flourishing of all. We are meant to resist every urge to lobby and position ourselves to become a powerful and privileged moral majority. Rather, we are to pursue our God-given and biblically mandated calling to be a fiercely love-driven, self-donating, prophetic minority. Love-driven. The thing that drives my engagement with the world around me is not let me show you how you're wrong, but compassion that compels me by the love of God given to me by the Spirit. Self-donating, meaning I'm willing not to stand on a pedestal, separating myself from the world around me. But like Jesus entered our sinful, broken world, I am prepared to invest myself in those that sometimes, if I'm honest, I don't believe these people deserve this. And yet, isn't that the gospel? And finally, prophetic, meaning that we don't abandon our convictions, but rather as we live out our convictions powerfully, with compassion. The world sees a different way. And maybe in that, Christ is seen to be beautiful and redemptive, and the gospel is seen to be true. And so I want to invite us to pray, and I want to invite us all to stand as we pray. And what I'm simply going to do Maybe, Heather, if you can put the the verses for today on the screen. I'm simply going to use the verses from today as a platform for praying. And so feel free to 
keep your eyes closed and your head bowed or feel free to keep your eyes on Scripture as we pray. And Father, you call us to invest ourselves in the culture and the city around us, building houses and settling down. Father, you, you call us to contribute to the culture around us by planting gardens and eating what they produce. And so Father, help us. Help us not see culture as our enemy, but a place and environment that we can contribute towards, that we can invest ourselves in, invest our love in, invest our time in, invest our resources in, in the name of Jesus. Father, you call us to marry and have sons and you call us to invest and set up a legacy for the next generation. And so Father God, I pray that you'd redeem our view of marriage. I pray that we would see marriage as an opportunity for an incredible witness to the world around us and a stable platform for the kingdom. In the same way, Lord, I pray for those who are experiencing or have experienced broken families, broken marriage. I pray for your redemptive hand and work there. I pray for those who desire to have children and are struggling. And I pray for your healing and your hand and your grace and that you supply what is needed there. But Father God, that is not simply for our own experience of life, but it is a picture of us being for the world. And Father God, I pray that we might increase in number. I pray that our churches might increase in number. I pray that through our churches and through our businesses and through our relationships and through our communities, we might increase in our impact in this way. And Father, we seek the peace and prosperity of our country and we seek the peace and prosperity of our city. Forgive us for perceiving the city of Johannesburg as our enemy. And Father, we pray for the transition of the mayor of Johannesburg at the moment. We pray for our new government as they are just seeking to move towards the plans that you have for us. And we pray that you would use believers and you would even use, as, as we see so many times in Scripture, you even turning the heart of the King. And so we ask and we pray for the peace of our country and the prosperity of our country. Father God, we don't only pray. We choose to invest. We choose to pour our lives out. We choose to show a picture of hope. And Father, this is how you called us to live. I pray that you'd give us such incredible opportunity to live this out in our individual capacities. So lead us, Holy Spirit, provide all that we need so we can be these types of people in this world. Give us wisdom when it comes to receiving the things of this world. Give us wisdom and courage when it comes to rejecting the things of this world. And give us opportunity when it comes to redeeming the things of this world and showing this world a redeeming Savior. 
so we ask this, Jesus, in your mighty name. Amen. Amen.